Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. It's Christmas morning, and as you know, there's a ton of tradition associated with Christmas. But how much of it is biblical? Is any of it biblical? I mean, in an attempt to dispel some of those myths, this morning I want to look at the where, the when, and the why of Christ's birth. Where was he born? When was he born and why was he born? The why, of course, being the most important, but I think the other two are just as confused as the why. They're all very confused today. So let's start with the where of his birth. Where was Christ born? Well, it was prophesied by Micah that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one shall go forth for me. To be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephratah. Because there were two Bethlehems. One Bethlehem was in Galilee, the other one was in Judea. And so, just so there's no confusion, the prophecy dealt with the birth of this one who was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, a tiny little town south of Jerusalem. It was no big deal other than the fact that King David was born there. So that did make it a big deal. It says that this person is going to go from the days of eternity. In other words, he's saying the one who is to be born in Bethlehem is eternal. And the only person that's eternal is God. So Yeshua the Christ is the eternal God, the son of David, born in the city of David, just as Micah prophesied. Luke says this, while they were there, that's in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we've all grown up hearing the account, you know, the holiday inn at Bethlehem was full. There's just no, you know, the no vacancy sign was up. And so, you know, they were just out of luck. They had to look for a barn somewhere. To have a baby in. Um, <clears throat> and they ended up in a stable and they just took the Lord and put him in a manger with a bunch of straw. And, you know, I guess they think that even adds to the, you know, pa- the king born in poverty kind of story. But, you know, and we get this kind of picture, you know, there's no one there but, you know, Joseph and Mary and a bunch of animals, you know, <clears throat> to, around the birth of Christ. And uh, this image has been used to promote the typical Christmas nativity scene. For generations. I mean, you see plays at school, this is what you see. You go, you know, to the store, the nativity scenes, around the tree, you get these nativity scenes. But really, a careful analysis of the biblical text gives us a different story. Now, that doesn't seem to bother most people, you know. (laughs) Most people aren't troubled by the text. But the text teaches a little bit different story. The Greek word translated in here is kataluma. And it means a place of rest. Usually, it's translated guest room. That's a big difference than no room in the Holiday Inn. There's no room in the guest room. Luke uses the same word later where it clearly refers to a guest room and not an inn. In Luke 22.11, And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So same author, same Greek word, kataluma, but totally different translation. Now, why did they do that? I have no idea, unless they wanted to, you know, they wanted to push this in story, I guess. Because there's just no sense to, 
to doing that. Well, the word's only used one other time in the New Testament, Kataluma, and that's by Mark, in Mark 14, 14. He says, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So in Mark, it's also translated guest room. So why translate Kataluma as in in the story of Christ's birth? I really don't know. I mean, I just can't imagine why they'd pick that out of there. You know, and what's really interesting is that when Luke does speak of an inn, he uses a totally different word. Remember the story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So Yeshua mentions here that the injured man in the story was taken to an inn. And here Luke uses the word pandoheon. The first part of the word pan means all. The second part as a verb means to receive. So pandoheon means a place that receives all. Namely a commercial inn. So this common Greek word for an inn was so widely known across the Middle East over the centuries, that it was used in all kinds of different languages. Arabic, Turkish, uh, all Coptic, all having the same meaning of a commercial inn. And so when Luke wants to talk about a commercial inn, he knows a word that he can use to do that. So again, I'm not really sure why they translated it into that story as inn. Now, if Luke expected his readers to think Joseph was turned away from an inn, then he should have used pandoheon, which... He knows is a commercial inn. But in Luke 2 7, he uses kataluma, no room. Kataluma, no room. So, if you look at some, and this is why it's helpful to use different translations. Sometimes translations get it right. You know, and Young's is one who, who gets it right a lot. Young's literal translation translates as guest chamber. And she brought forth her son, the firstborn, and wrapped him up and laid him down in the manger because there was not for them a place in the guest chamber. Oh, there wasn't any place in the guest room, the guest chamber. So he gets it right. So no room in the inn has been taken on the meaning of, you know, the inn had a number of rooms. They were all booked and the no vacancy sign was off. And, you know, so there was just no place for when they arrived in Bethlehem, they get there and they're like, well, the inns are full. So there's no place to go. But the Greek word here for room doesn't refer to room in an inn, but rather a space. It's the Greek word tapos. It's like saying, there's no space on my desk to put that. It's the idea that there's not enough space. So, there wasn't enough space for them in the guest room. Now, the linguistic evidence shows that Luke used the term kataluma to mean not an inn, but a guest room. And the definite article is used here, the Kataluma, that guest room of a particular house. Um, houses in those days had guest rooms, either above them or built on the side for people to stay in. That was very typical. But you know right now the city's full because the census is being taken and there's just tons of people everywhere. So for some reason there's no room in the guest room. Now, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, after pointing out the word Kataluma is used everywhere in the gospel for guest chamber of a private home, they make that statement, says this. Was the inn at Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary sought a night's lodging an upper guest room in a private home? 
or some kind of public place for travelers. The question cannot be answered with certainty. Really? Yes, it can. I mean, if we're not afraid to, you know, make certainties, you know, today I guess maybe we're not allowed to do that. You have to just be wishy-washy about everything. But, yeah, I think it can be answered. It goes on to say, it is thought by some that it may have been a guest chamber provided by the community. We know that the visitors to the annual feast in Jerusalem were entertained in the guest rooms of private homes. And, and I think that by understanding the culture and the linguistics of the text, if you understand what the word means, the question can be answered with certainty. I think another factor that powerfully argues against the term meaning an inn is that those places, those inns in that day, were not appropriate for giving birth to a child. All right, They were far from anything like the typical motels and hotels that are around today. Uh, generally speaking, the inns had a very bad reputation. The poor conditions of public inns, together with the Semitic spirit of hospitality, led the Jews and the early Christians to recommend the keeping of an open house for the benefit of strangers. They wanted to have a guest room. They wanted to have a place to put up strangers because these inns weren't really fit places to stay. And besides this, for commercial reasons, inns were usually found along major roads. You know, they still kind of do that today, right? They put them where they think people are going to need to stop and use them. But Bethlehem was a small town in the upper mountains of Judea, and no major Roman road is known to have passed through it. And since it seems to have been an insignificant village at the time, it's doubtful that there was an inn there. It just wouldn't really make sense. Now this gives us reason to realize that what Luke really wrote is that there was no room for them in the guest chamber. Alright? Now certainly due to the Roman census being taken at that time, the huge number of people traveling to their birthplaces... You know, everybody's house was full. Anybody who had a guest chamber probably had people in it. So the question becomes, does that mean that Joseph and Mary planned to stay in someone's home, but since the guest room was full, they made him go sleep in a stable? Mary's in labor. Oh, go out back. we got a stable out back there. You'll be fine. That might seem worse than being turned away from a commercial inn, you know? Because this is no doubt a relative's home that they stayed in. And so they're rel- you, you got the relatives turning them out, go back in the stable, we're here comfortable in the house, you guys figure it out. Here's something we have to understand that helps us understand this text also. In Christ's day, hospitality was huge. It was huge. The Jews had six things to commend a man in the life to come And guess what the first thing on that list was? Hospitality. Thank you. Good guess. (laughs) It was hospitality. Now, we don't think of hospitality as one of the top ten or anything like that, but the Jews, it was number one. And they got that idea from the Scripture. Texts like uh, Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. Denial of hospitality was shown throughout Scripture to be an outrage. So hospitality towards visitors is still important in the Middle East. I mean, it's a big deal. And since Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home, he no doubt had relatives there. And being a descendant of King David, whose hometown this was, he would have been highly respected upon his arrival. This is not just some couple that nobody knew. These are basically celebrities-like, all right? 
Think of uh, a descendant of George Washington coming to his hometown in Alexandria, Virginia, after a space of time, and the townspeople show him no respect. No, that's not going to happen. Kenneth Bailey, who's a Middle Eastern scholar, a New Testament scholar, he explains it this way. He says, my 30-year experience with the villagers in the Middle East is that the intensity of honor shown to the passing guest is still very much in force, especially when it's a returning son of the village who is seeking shelter. We have observed cases where a complete village has turned out in a great celebration to greet a young man who has suddenly arrived unannounced in the village, which his grandfather had left many years before. It was just important to them, you know, to show hospitality. And I think it should also be pointed out that childbirth was a big event, you know, at that time. And in a small village like Bethlehem, Many of the neighboring ladies would have got together to help out with the birth. It's not Mary and Joseph stuck in a stable by themselves. A lot of the ladies would have come together, and Joseph probably wouldn't even have been there, okay? He's out in the waiting room, all right? All the ladies are in there. They're helping out. In a private home, if that's where they had the baby, would have had all the facilities they needed to have that baby. What this all means is that it would have been really unthinkable, it really would have been unimaginable as an insult, you know, to have Joseph returning to his hometown, a village son, and his laboring wife, and they need shelter, because they're going to have a baby, and they're of the descendants of David, and they're turned out to a stable. It just doesn't fit the culture, it doesn't fit the language, it doesn't fit anything we know. But how do we get that story? I just don't think that's what happened at all. Nor can we say that they were sent out into the night from a private home. You know, that's kind of crazy. So what actually happened? What really did happen? Well, the birth of Christ is later overlaid with so much tradition and legend about Christmas that it's really hard to let the biblical text speak for itself. You know, we read the text and we have already have this idea, so we read our idea onto the text. And all we need is just a little something that sounds right to go with our, you know, our views are myths, and it seems to make sense. The common assumption is that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, being hastened by her labor. I mean, they're on their way, and she's starting to have labor as they get to Bethlehem, okay? So they're telling the donkey to hurry up, you know, she's got labor pains. So they rush in, and they go to the hotel, the Holiday Inn, and there's no vacancies. So they end up in a stable out back, and she gives birth. That's what most people think. But if you do a careful reading of the text, do a little work in the text, you find out that they've been in Bethlehem for some time. All right, They didn't just get there and she had labor right away. In Luke 2.4, we are told that Mary and Joseph went up to Bethlehem. The verse assumes their arrival. And then verse 6 says, while they were there. All right, So they've been in Bethlehem. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. While they're in Bethlehem, she starts having labor. So the text affirms the time lapse between the arrival and the birth of Yeshua. So they must have been already lodging somewhere. They're, they're in Bethlehem, and the birth pains begin. They found a house in Bethlehem to stay in, probably one of Joseph's relatives. Now, do you think that you know, the relative said, Hey, you're having a baby, you need to go do that in the stable. We don't do that around here. We're not going to have you have a baby in the house. That's crazy. No, not at all. I mean... So why do we get this idea that he's born in a stable? The text doesn't say that. So where do we get it from? 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the Holiday Inn. No, there's no room in the guest room. So how do we get stable out of this? Okay, a manger. She laid him in a manger. Everyone knows that mangers are in stables, right? Wrong. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not. We think that. Because where did we learn about mangers? From the little nativity scenes under the Christmas tree. <laughs> That's the only way we even know about them, you know? None of you have a manger. You know, we, we saw, we just figured that's, that's what it must be. But what we don't understand and what we need, this is understanding the culture. You know, we have to get, if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to get into the head of the first century people, the people who wrote the Bible, the people who are reading the Bible to understand what they saw of it, what they thought of it. A typical, a typical Judean house that day consisted of an area right inside the door that was right on the ground, dirt floor, where they kept the animals. Now, I know you say, well, we're not keeping animals in our house. Some people have, you know, my wife's not a big fan of having a dog in the house. I don't, know th- I don't think she'd go for an ox. <laughs> or an ass, or whatever else, bringing sheep in the house. Honey, I'm bringing the sheep in today. But they, they're, that's how it was set up. So the people would bring their animals in at night. Okay, to protect them from predators, keep them from being stolen, and also they provided warmth in the house on cool nights. So they bring them in through the door, there's this dirt floor, then that the family had a raised area that was their room, their living room, their dining room, their bedroom, their everything, one room there, okay? So you got a raised platform, that's where the people stay, the animals are right down there, but they're very close. They, they, the family lived and slept on that raised part, just set back a little ways from the door. And, then, and most houses had a guest room, a small little guest room either on the second floor or adjoining, just so they could be hospitable. They could help other people, which is amazing because most of us have houses that would hold 10 people and we don't let anybody stay there. You know, I mean, it's just our society. That's how, how, that's how it is. <clears throat> well, the lower area near the floor had a manger for food and water. Now, there's a, you know... This is controversial, but most people say that the mangers were more providing water than food. So they're more of a water trough. Um, could be. I don't know. All right? Not a big deal, I guess. It was more often the wealthy families who even had stables for their animals that would be apart from the house. You know, if you got money, you know, why have animals in the house? But, you know, it didn't bother them back then because, like I said, it kept them warm. They knew their animals were safe. All that was very important. They weren't worried about, you know, the smells and stuff. They didn't have showers. They didn't take a bath every day anyway. So you, you can figure out, you know, maybe it wasn't all that pleasant. <laughs> so a more realistic view of what occurred when Christ's birth happened was, you know, according to the customs of the time, is that that manger was in a house. Okay? It wasn't in a stable somewhere. It was part of their house for their animals. Now, this cultural information gives us a new understanding of the story of Yeshua's birth. So, Joseph and Mary, they arrive in Bethlehem. They find shelter with a family member whose separate guest room is either full or it's too small. There are already people in there. And so, they're accommodated among the family in the acceptable style that day. They just bring them into the house and that one room they're, they're living in. And the birth takes place there on this raised terrace of the family home, 
and they take the baby and they lay him in the manger there. Now, the Palestinian reader of this story, the first century readers who read this, they're reading Luke's account, would have instinctively thought, manger. Oh, they're in the main family room. And they would have thought, why, wonder why they didn't put him in the guest room. And so Luke says, because there was no place in the guest room. They go, oh, okay, that makes sense. They already got somebody in there, so they just brought him into the house. And it just, when you understand the culture, it just makes a lot more sense. So now that we know where, he was born in Bethlehem, in a home, in that town. Not in a stable, you know, it wasn't some lonely, wretched birth. There was midwives there taking care, helping out. Um, just a beautiful birth in somebody's home. And the relatives were rejoicing over this. So that's the where. Now, let's look at the when of Christ's birth. You know, how many times have you heard, this is the reason, he's the reason for the season? That has got to be the biggest joke I've ever heard. People who say that don't, you know, Christmas has, what does it have to do with Christ? I don't, I'm not sure how all the traditions got to be where they're at. And I don't have, per se, a problem with Christmas. Okay? I just think it's another holiday, like 4th of July or whatever. It's just a holiday that we do. And I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong to have a tree. I don't think it's wrong to decorate it. I don't think it's wrong to give presents. Unless you can't afford them, you know, I, you know, but the thing that always frustrates me is leave Christ out of it. What does he have to do with that? You know, people say, oh, it's Christ's birthday. What did you get me? <laughs> you don't, unless you're a little kid, you don't usually get something on somebody else's birthday, you know, so that's not really how it works. But, you know, if you've been listening to me any like the time, you know that I don't think Christmas is the day he was born. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, we learn from Luke's Gospel that the shepherds received the announcement of the birth of the Savior, bless you, from an angel. Alright, Luke, again, going back to some cultural understanding here, Luke 2, 8-11. through 11. The same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field, oops, staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people for today. In the city of David, that's Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now here we have shepherds staying out in the fields. The words fields here, agroleo, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. When you think of a field, you know, you drive by fields around like a strawberry field. You see this huge field. Their fields were about the size of this room. It was a family plot. It's where they grew their vegetables, grew their food. And you know what you don't want in your field? Shepherds. Bringing, you don't want people bringing their flock into your field eating your food. That's for you. So why are these shepherds in the fields? That's not where they belong. They take the sheep out into the wilderness and they graze them out there. They don't bring them into the fields. Alright? Well, what happens is once you harvest your field, the moment the harvest is gone, these shepherds move in. They move into the field that's already been harvested and then the sheep turn the stubble into dirt. I mean, they just eat everything. You know, there's nothing there. And if the shepherds show up before harvest, you're going to have a battle, okay, between the farmers and the shepherds, because that's their food. 
All right, they've got to wait until the harvest gets out. Now, the harvest ends about July 1st, and spring planting begins the moment the first rain happens, which is usually around November 1st. So, Yeshua's birth could not have been between November 1st and July 1st, which rules out December 25th. Okay? It's not even an option. All right? But we can narrow it down a lot better than that. Okay? I can give you more than just, you know, it's not in these months. I can tell you the exact day he was born. And I'll tell you a date that you'll remember. Okay? But remember, they're in the field, so that means... Christ is not born December 25th. All right, let's look at Revelation uh, 12, 1 and 2. This is an interesting text. As a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor, in pain, to give birth. Now notice that uh, John says here, a great sign appeared in the heaven. It's important to recognize the relationship of all this to the astronomical symbolism in the text. The word John uses here for sign is a term that was used of the ancient to describe the constellations of the zodiac. Now, we talked about this before, went into great length, and if you, you know, you want to get more on this, then get, I guess it was last year's message on, you know, astronomy or astrology and the birth of Christ. Went into a lot of detail about the constellations back there, but... John's model for this vision of the church is the constellation Virgo. And Virgo has a crown of 12 stars. Virgo is the second largest constellation, one of the earliest to be distinguished. It lies on the zodiac east of Leo. All 12 stars are visible. You could see them as an observer. That seems likely the 12 stars also represent the 12 signs of the zodiac. And from ancient times, they were regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we have these 12, all right? Now, in his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest Martin says, using this text in Revelation, in the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered the head position. Remember, we have have some very specific astronomical predictions in this text in Revelation. He said, the sun entered the head position of the woman about August 13th, and exited from her feet about October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman. This surely indicates that the position of the sun in the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied on the woman between the neck and the knees. Now the only time in the year when the sun could be in that position to clothe this celestial woman to be mid-bodied is when it was located about 150 and 170 degrees along the ecliptic. This clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for 20 days out of the year. So now we got it narrowed down to a 20-day period of time where Christ could have been born. He goes on to say, this 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born in 3 B.C. That's when this happened. The sun could have entered this celestial region about August 22nd and exited from it about September 15th. Now, if John in the book of Revelation is associating the birth of Christ with the period when the sun is mid-body in the woman, from, then Christ would have have to be born within this 20-day period. He says, from the point of view of the Magi, who were astronomers, by the way, this would have been the only logical sign under which the Jewish Messiah might be born, especially if he were born of a virgin. 
So even today, astrologers recognize that the sign Virgo is one which has reference to a messianic world ruler who would be born of a virgin. Now, the key to narrowing the date down is the moon. See, John said that it was located under her feet. And since the feet of Virgo the Virgin represent the last seven degrees of the constellation in the time of Christ, this would have been about 180 and 187 degrees along the ecliptic. Now, the moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven-degree arch. But the moon also has to be in the exact location when the sun is mid-bodied to Virgo. So all this stuff has to line up, and it did. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours. Only a two-hour window. As observed from Palestine on September 11th. Now, can you remember that date, September 11th, 9-11? That's kind of a significant date for, you know, Americans. You know, well, that was the birth of Christ. And what's interesting, I've never seen anybody tie 9-11 into the birth of Christ, you know? <laughs> never seen, I've seen them tie a lot of things into it, but never that. But, so they're saying, you know, according to the text in Revelation, and this stuff is really precise, you know, and they, they have computer models now that you can go back, pick a year, you can go back and see the position of the sun, see a position of the stars, see everything on the models that they've laid out. So this is the birth of Christ, people. It's September 11th, all right? So if you want to celebrate his birth, that's the day to do it, all right? And I would suggest you wouldn't do it the way we do Christmas, okay? If you're going to celebrate his birth, you know, celebrate his birth. So what about December 25th? I mean, how do we come up with that? Does that have any significance whatsoever? Yeah, I was really surprised years ago to find out, because I always, December 25th is nothing. But it is something. It, it is a very, today is a very significant day. Martin states, Jupiter, recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as the planet of the Messiah, was located in Virgo's womb and standing still directly over Bethlehem on December 25th, 2 B.C. Now, that's about a year after his birth, a little more than a year after the birth of Christ. The child's a little over a year old. Matthew states that the family was settled into a house by that time when the Magi came to visit it. Now, you know, we got all this story all mixed up, and we got the Magi showing up in the stable. It's not really even a stable, so it gets confusing. But the Magi, the wise men who showed up, showed up over a year later to worship Christ. Matthew 2, 10 and 11 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, not the stable, it's a year later, no one was ever in a stable, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How about that? On Christmas Day, Christ gets presents. He's the one who gets present. It's not his birthday, but they're there. Why? To worship him as king. So it was December 25th in the year 2 BC when the Magi, the wise men, showed up to worship this king. And they worshiped him with providing him with these gifts. So I think that gives some significance to this day. This is a day that Christ was worshipped. And so if you use this day to worship him, that's great. <laughs> we do a lot of other things besides that on this day, but it's a great day to come together and have church, 
You know, on the day that they went to worship Christ, kind of sad, a lot of churches canceled it. We're not going to want to meet because, and never mind, I won't get into it. Okay. okay. So we know where. Bethlehem, in a private home, with midwives, just like any other child would be born into that culture. We know when. September 11th. Like I said, the stars make it. You got a two hour window for that birth. So it was on, you know, September 11th that Christ was born, 3 BC. So let's look at the why. And this is another thing that is really confused. And this is one, you know, is dangerous to get this one confused. Why was Christ born? Why was he born? Well, the text in Matthew 1, 18 through 23, I think tells us. So let's look at that text. Another, you know, typical Christmas text. Now, the birth of Yeshua the Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, back in this culture, you're Joseph. All right? How old do you think Mary was? Fifteen. We got fifteen. Fifteen once. Going twice, twice, twice. Fifteen. We got... Um, I've been reading the book of Jasser, pseudepigraphal work. It expounds on Genesis. And it's talking the story of Isaac and Rebekah. And it says that Rebekah was 10 years old. And that, people, that is not unusual for that culture. 10 years old. Now listen, you know, people say, that seems weird. You know the Muslims? <laughs> you know that the Muslims take their wives when they're about five or six years old? Today, right now, they do that. Right now. Five or six years old. So Mary was probably 10, 12 years old. You know? And Joseph's an adult. All right, The men would be older. Women younger. And she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. And uh, God told me it's going to be the child of God. And you're going to believe that? I was like, Mary, what have you been smoking? This is crazy. You know, and he's distraught and she's distraught because, you know, God talked to her and now, you know, she's just, what am I going to do? You can't imagine what this would have done to that woman. And, and for her to go tell her dad, hey, dad, I'm pregnant. You know, he wanted to go shoot Joseph. No, no, it's not Joseph's. Mary, you know, this is really a scandal. You know, they would have to, and, and it's a little village. Everybody knows everybody, you know. So it's, it was a big, today it's like, it's almost normal, but it was scandalous then, alright? Alright, verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not willing to disgrace her, desire to put her away secretly. I gotta get rid of her, I'm just gonna, you know, not make a big deal, just, you know, give her a right of divorce. They were betrothed, they weren't married yet, but he still had to write her a bill of divorce. So he'd write her a bill, you're done, I'm out of here, alright? But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's a good thing. I mean, you need God to tell you that, you know, if that's going on. You need an angel to come visit you and let you know this, okay? <clears throat> For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I'd have trouble even if an angel told me that, okay? <laughs> it just, you know, this is hard to buy. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means 
God with us. You know, this has got to be the greatest miracle, the most fantastic truth recorded in the pages of Scripture that God became a man. That's why I like that song, Mary, Did You Know? Do you understand, Mary? You're nursing, you're caring, you're raising God. The, per- the God that created you, you're raising. And here we have in Bethlehem, the Almighty appears as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare. And he did cry. Okay? I know the hymn says no cry. He was a real baby. <laughs> he did cry. Although I'm sure it was miserable being his brothers, you know. Because, you know, why can't you be more like Yeshua? You know? <clears throat> well, because we're just men, you know. We can't. <laughs> we can't. That's why they didn't believe for a while, you know. Raised, being raised with him would have been difficult. But the... The more you think about the Incarnation, the more staggering it gets. You know, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation, that God became a man. And why? Why did He become a man? Well, the answer is found in verse 21 of our text. You'll call His name Yeshua, for He will save His people from their sins. That's the reason for His coming. He came to save us. Now, Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. That's what it means. The text says He came to save His people. And there's Christians today who say, see, He came to save His people, though we're Jews. He only came to save Jews if you're a Gentile. Too bad. Well, speaking of the Abraham covenant, Paul writes this. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham, right? And to his seed. Okay, so the promise is to Abraham and his seed. And he wants to clarify this. By his descendants, he's not meaning all his physical descendants. He does not say, and to thy seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So who's the promise? The promise is made to Abraham and Christ. That's who the promise is made to. Now, this, of course, includes all believers Because believers are in Christ and they're heirs of the promise. So the promise is not realized in ethnic Jews, but it's realized in Jews and Gentiles who trust Christ. Because you're in Christ, you're an heir to the promise. Now in the birth of Yeshua, God invaded human history in the form of a man. Yeshua lived a sinless life and He died a substitutionary death at Calvary. On the cross... He took on Himself our sin debt, our judgment, and gave us His righteousness. So when we ask, why was Christ born? He was born to die. That's why He became a man. He became a man to die. That was the purpose of it. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom here is the Greek word lutron, which is a word used to denote the buying back of a war captive, as well as many other concepts. In the Septuagint, lutron was used as the price paid to redeem a life. It was payment made to obtain release and freedom. So the ransom price is life. And this is what the Bible says again and again. Christ died in our place. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 We were justified by His blood, meaning His death. Romans 5.9 We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans 5.10 He bore our sins in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.8 We need to understand that this act of giving His life as a ransom was intentional. He came to do it. He came to die. He didn't come to earth for other reasons and got caught up in this plot and somehow got killed in it. No, He came to die. He came to give His life. And because He was an innocent, infinite sufferer, He satisfied fully and completely the righteous demands of a holy God. Listen, and God was propitiated. Do you understand the word propitiation? Paul uses it in Romans 3. Being justified, that's declared righteous, made righteous, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Yeshua, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. So we are declared righteous through redemption on the basis of propitiation. To understand propitiation is to understand the gospel. And to not understand propitiation is to not understand the gospel. The Greek word used here is hilasterion. And hilasterion means this. It's hard for, I think, us to grab this propitiation. The alleviation of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. In other words, God was angry. Why? Because we sin. How do we appease God? How do we, how do we deal with this anger? Well, we have to offer a sacrifice. So what do we sacrifice? A bull, a goat? Well, that doesn't do it. That doesn't cut it. So what, it was, so what God did is He said, I'll take care of the problem. See, people just think God just, because He likes somebody, says, I'll just forget your debt. Forget you sinned against me. Forget you violated who I am. Come on into heaven. We'll let you slide. Slip you in the back door. Okay, just keep your head down. Don't tell anybody how you got it. That doesn't work that way, okay? God is just... He is holy. He is righteous. He has to punish sin. And so, you, so your, your sin has to be paid for. And listen, believer, your sin was paid for in full. Christ paid your sin debt. So guess what? You stand before God righteous. And when you get to heaven, you deserve to be there. Because you're righteous. You don't deserve to be there because you did some wonderful things. You deserve to be there because Christ paid your sin debt. He gave you His righteousness. You belong there. That's an incredible concept, people. We're not getting to heaven. We don't bow our heads. Oh, shucks. I'm so glad you let me in. No, lift your head high. You belong there. You're a child of the King. You're a son of God. There's no sacrifice we can offer to alleviate the wrath of God. So God did it for us. He provided His own propitiation out of love for the glory of God. He absorbs the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. Again, the price was paid so that we can be justified as a gift by His grace. Listen, if you ever for a moment question God's love, think about propitiation. You know, People say, I'm just not sure God loves me. Just look at the cross. He put His own Son to death because He loved you so much. That's love. See God doing 
what we could not do to satisfy His justice, but He did to His own Son to satisfy His justice. So, the when and where of Christ's birth, we can debate, we can argue about those all we want, but the why is very important. You've got to understand the why. He came to die for sinners. Yeshua, in the incarnation, was born into this world in order to pay our sin debt. It was substitutionary. He died to bear our sin and to give us His righteousness. He paid it all. And what He asked in return, trust me, believe me that I've taken care of your debt. Don't count on anything you can do. Don't hope in anything you can provide. Believe me when I say your debt is paid in full. And today, may we, like the wise men did 2,000 years ago, worship Him. Worship Him who paid it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, I thank You that there is some biblical significance to this day. That on this day, thousands of years ago, these magi from the east came bringing gifts to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank You, Lord, that Christ came into this world. Came to die for us. Lord, we rejoice in that. And I pray we rejoice in that every day, Lord. Realizing how much You love us. Thank You, Father, for Your grace. Thank You for Your Word. May it be our guidance, Lord, in all we believe and all we understand. May the things we hold to come from Your text. Thank You, Lord. Amen.